There's a million things we have to do today, and worrying doesn't need to be one of them. That's why one in nine families use Life360 for safety, to connect to the people that matter most. Join today and get premium features that keep your family protected with real-time location updates, crash detection, and 24-7 roadside assistance. Because let's face it, you're more than just your to-do list, you're a family. So let's live life 360. Download for free today. Coming to you from Nashville, Tennessee, this is the award-winning Parareality Radio Show. Good evening, everybody. My name's Sandman. I'm going to be your host for the next two hours. Thanks for tuning in. Well, it is Friday, January 2nd, 2015, and that means that it is time for the kickoff of Season 9 for Parareality Radio. I said this episode here kicks off season nine of Parareality Radio, and I'm really excited about what this season's got in store for you. If you heard the final show of season eight, you're aware that there's some changes that are already taking place around here in the Parareality Radio studios, such as the day you can hear the latest episode. I've changed the day from the first Monday of every month to the first Friday of every month. The time remains the same, 8 o'clock p.m. Central Standard U.S. time. At least it's going to stay that way for now. It may change in the future, but as it stands for the for the foreseeable future anyway, we're going to keep it the same, 8 o'clock p.m., just the day. So from the first Monday to the first Friday, the first Friday of every month, 8 o'clock p.m. Central Standard time is when you can hear the latest episode of Parareality Radio. That's the biggest major change. More things are coming, but I'll let you know about those later. Instead, what I'm going to do right now <clears throat> is I'm going to tell you what's in store for you on tonight's episode of Parareality Radio. I'm going to be counting down my top 10 unsolved mysteries. Most of these I'm sure you've probably heard of, but there's probably a couple that you haven't. You may not be all that familiar with those. I've also done shows on probably about half of these things already. So um, <clears throat> I'm you know, not going to 
spend a lot of time rehashing a lot of the same old information. Some of the stuff that I'm going to present on, on, on the topics that I've already discussed anyway will be a little, I'll have a little updates to them. I'm not going to spend a whole hell of a lot of time on each and every topic, uh, but I am going to touch um, on at least you know a, a few minutes worth of my top 10 unsolved mysteries. <clears throat> you may or may not agree with what these are, but, you know, like I said, it's my show, my list, so it's my top ten list of unsolved mysteries. But before I begin the show, let me tell you, as always, how you can get in contact with me, because there are a few different ways. First of all, I do have an email address. Send me an email, sandman at parareality.com. Or you can just... Visit the website, which is, of course, parareality.com. I'm also available on Facebook. Just look for Sandman.parareality there on Facebook. And finally, you can still call the studio line at area code 615-692-1170. That number to call once again is 615-692-1170. That's the studio line. You can call that and leave a message. Just be aware that I may play your comment back on the show. I may also answer the phone as well because I'm always in the studio working on something and you may call at a time when I am here and I may actually answer the phone. But if you do leave a message, just be aware that by leaving a message, you are giving me permission to play that message back live on the air. So if you don't want to hear your voice played on the air, you best not leave a message. So those are all the different ways you can get in contact with me here on the show. <clears throat> Sorry, I've got, <clears throat> got some stuff in the back of my throat this afternoon, this evening. Sorry. First of all, you can reach me by emailing me, sandmanparareality.com. Look me up on Facebook, sandman.parareality on Facebook, or call me, 615-692-1170, and leave a message. That's the studio line. So those are all the different ways that you can get in contact with me, Sandman, here on Parareality Radio. Uh, at the end of the show tonight, I'm going to be announcing who the winner is for my annual uh, end-of-the-year contest. So uh, I'm really excited to uh, let you guys know who won that, and um, <clears throat> I'll be getting to that, like I said, at the end of the broadcast here. So I'm going to get right into it, and we're going to kick off Season 9 of Parareality Radio with my top 10 list of unsolved mysteries. And we're going to start with number 10, and that distinction belongs to Severed Foot Beach. Severed Foot Beach. Since August the 20th, 2007, around 15 detached human feet have been discovered on the coast of the Salish Sea in British Columbia, Canada, and here in the United States and Washington State. So far, it's known that five of the feet have belonged to men, one to a woman, and the others, well, they belong to people of uh, unknown sex. Now, there have been two left feet found, and those two left feet has been matched with two of the right feet. So, we have a pair, at least, of, uh, we have two pair of matching feet. <clears throat> Strange, right? As of uh, 
well, the last last that I have is about three years old. The last info is of February 2012. Only five feet of four people have been identified. And it's not known to who the rest of the feet belong. And as you can imagine, in addition to this, there's been several hoax feet that have been planted in the area. Some have been uh, uh, um, animal feet that were stuffed into socks and had other things stuffed in there and tied up and shoved in a shoe. Uh, Some of them were uh, just raw meat that were shoved in a shoe. All kind of hoaxes have been going on with this uh, severed foot beach thing. Now, the series of discovered feet has been called astounding and almost beyond explanation because there's no other body parts that have actually turned up. The discoveries have caused speculation that the feet may be those of people who died in something like a boating accident or an airplane crash in the ocean or something of that nature. One explanation is that some of the feet are those of, uh, they're from four men who died in a plane crash, uh, outside of, uh, well, right off, right off of, uh, this Island called Quadra Island in 2005. And these guys, these four men, their bodies have never been found though. One of the feet has been determined to be from a female. So, you know, I'll get to that in a minute. Now, as you can guess, foul play has also been suggested, although none of the first four feet showed any kind of uh, tool marks or saw marks or anything like that, like someone had uh, cut their feet off of them, off off of the bodies. Now, this doesn't rule out foul play because it it is possible that the bodies could have been weighted down and thrown in the ocean and the feet were, they just came off due to natural decay down there in the, in the bottom of the ocean. So, you know, it's, it's, it's a possibility that foul play could have been involved in at least some of them. Now, determining the origin of the feet is complicated because ocean currents can carry floating items, well, for quite a long way. And because the currents in the in the Strait of Georgia, right off of the area where I'm talking about here, can be really unpredictable. A foot from a from a person <clears throat> can float as far as a thousand miles, and also. Human feet have a tendency to become kind of uh, gelatinous, which makes it hard for forensic scientists to find clues from the feet. And now, under optimal conditions, a human body can remain intact in water for as long as three decades, 30 years. And that just means that the feet may have been floating around out in the water for, you know, years and years. Now, another one of the theories that surrounds Severed Foot Beach is that the feet has, they belong to people who died in the Asian tsunami all the way back in 2004, uh, December 26, 2004 to be exact. Um, there is a writer named Shane uh, Lambert who is from Richmond, British Columbia, Canada, and he's one of the forerunners of this uh, theory. 
And his reason for that is because he points out the fact that a lot of the shoes uh, found with the feet were manufactured and sold in 2004 or before. Now, this guy, the same guy, he does acknowledge that there could be other sources for the shoes or, or, or multiple sources. However, besides the dates when the shoes were manufactured, he cites ocean currents and their ultimate northward tendencies up the Pacific Ocean from part of the region that was hit by the 2004 tsunami. So, you know, it's possible. Um, I'm not going to rule it out, but I'm going to say highly unlikely, but it is possible. <clears throat> now, one of the feet has been identified as belonging to a man who was depressed and probably committed suicide. And two feet were identified as belonging to a woman who committed suicide by jumping from the uh, Patulo Bridge in 2004. Now, this suggests that the feet belong to various people who have jumped from the bridge or bridges. Of all of the, and those are just a few of the theories that have been put forth. So of, of all of them, all of the theories that I've discussed here and those that I haven't discussed, there's not one clear forerunner. So we still don't know why all these feet are washing up in this area and where the hell are they coming from? It can't be all attributed to just one thing. They can't all be coming from the tsunami. They can't all be coming from people who jumped off a bridge. And, and, and they can't all be coming from a plane crash. Or they can't all be coming from bodies that were dumped by the mob or whoever out in the middle of the ocean. It's just, it, it, there has to be multiple sources. What intrigues me about this is that... They're the just the sheer number of feet that wash up on this area. And it has to be attributed to the ocean currents. Um, is this a mystery that will ever be solved? Probably not. Um, it's, it would be it's interesting. I would love to know if we could just find out who all the feet belonged to. It would help us go a long way towards understanding what has been happening and how the currents work and how these feet are winding up on the beach. But I doubt that we'll ever, ever find out. So that was my number 10 severed foot beach. If you've never heard of it, look it up. It's kind of creepy. All right. Number nine on my top 10 list belongs to the ever burning lamps. That's right. The ever burning lamps, the ever burning lamps. Now, in the years before electricity, cultures around the world used oil lamps to illuminate both the night and darkened enclosed spaces. A seemingly never-ending supply of oil was needed to keep these lamps burning, right? But mysteriously, there are accounts of lamps that burned without that necessary oil. These stories come from around the world. You've got them in Asia, South America, here in North America, Greece, Italy, Great Britain, and France, even Egypt. And also the, the Jewish festival of Hanukkah commemorates the miracle of lamps with only a day's worth of oil burning for eight days. So what do you think about that? 
Now, these mysterious ever-burning lamps were usually found when a when a tomb or other enclosed place was open, and the lamp was found to have been in there burning, even though the enclosure had been sealed for hundreds, if not thousands, of years. Many early writers told us about these kind of lamps. For example, in the year uh, 140, current era, the Tome of Pallas, who was a son of a local Italian king, was opened and a single lamp was found burning near the body, near, near the corpse. Now, the people who came into the tomb, who broke into the tomb, however you want to say it, they uh, tried to put the lamp out, but they found that neither water nor blowing on the lamp would extinguish the flame. It was finally put out when the liquid in the base of the lamp, which was determined not to be regular oil, but it could not be identified as to what exactly it was, it was only put out when that liquid was completely removed from the lamp's basin. Now, there were numerous other chronicles of similar things like this happening. During the end of the, uh, during, during the reign, excuse me, of uh, Emperor uh, Justinian, a, a, a group of soldiers came on a lamp, which, according to its inscription, had been initially lit for all, uh, about 550 years earlier. And the soldiers couldn't figure out how this could still be burning. In England, following his separation from the Roman Catholic Church, King Henry VIII established the Church of England. And he soon after demanded that many Catholic churches and communities be destroyed or incorporated into his new church, the Church of England. In one instance, the tomb of a wealthy man who had died around the year 300 was opened and found to contain a lamp that was still burning. In the 1600s in France, there's a written chronicle of a soldier from Switzerland who discovered a, a, a tomb that had been hidden for many, many years. And inside, he found a single burning lamp. He removed the lamp. It continued to burn without apparent fuel for several months until it was accidentally broken. And then, of course, it quit burning. The most enigmatic figure of the history of these puzzling lamps is a 13th century rabbi by the name of Jaseel. Now, written documents of the time state that there was a lamp outside of his house that burned continually without any apparent supply of oil. When questioned about the workings of this miraculous type of lamp, Jaseel would refuse to tell anybody anything about it. And the lamp was not the only puzzling feature of the rabbi's house. Contemporary accounts tell that the knocker on his front door could give off sparks when unwelcome visitors came to call. Modern theorists believe that Jaseel had somehow channeled a primitive form of electricity, but of course, no one knows for sure. Now, even with electricity being a common thing now these days, everybody who's tried to replicate these ever-burning lamps has been unsuccessful. So therefore, the question remains, how are these lamps able to keep burning for hundreds of years without fuel? Some sort of lost technology that 
would serve us well in this day and age, I do believe. Amazing, huh? Well, that covers numbers 9 and numbers 10. Or should I say number 10 and number 9, since we're counting backwards. Moving on to number 8, we're going to get to the wow signal. I'm sure you've probably all heard of the wow signal. One summer night in 1977, Jerry Inman, a volunteer for SETI, the Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence, he may have become the first man to ever receive an an intentional message from an alien world. Inman was scanning radio waves from deep space, hoping to randomly come across a signal that bore the hallmarks that, you know, might tell that tells it might have been sent by some sort of intelligent race, some alien race somewhere. And when he saw his little measurements spike. Now this signal, this spike lasted for 72 seconds, well over a minute, the longest period of time it could possibly be measured by the array that Emin was using. So who knows how long it really would have gone on. The longest he could measure it was 72 seconds. It was loud and appeared to have been transmitted from a place no human has gone before in the constellation Sagittarius near a star called Tau Sagittarius. You know how I'm going to have a problem pronouncing this. Tau Sagittarius. That's 120 light years away. So on this printout, he circled where this signal was and he wrote the words wow with an exclamation point on the original printout of this signal. And that's how the wow signal got its name. Now, all attempts to locate the signal again have failed, leading to a lot of controversy and mystery about its origins and meaning. It could, some say that uh, this was just a fluke, just a coincidence, maybe a malfunction. Uh, and they cite this because we've never received anything else from that area again. And people also use that same argument to say that it is legitimate because we've only received that one signal. So somebody was shooting something out into space like we were and uh, waiting for us to respond. And we didn't. So they turned their attention elsewhere. So we'll probably never know about what exactly the origins of the wow signal were or are, at least not in any of our lifetimes. But it is interesting to think that there's an alien life that's uh, just a mere 120 light years away. Now, that's pretty damn far. But uh, when you think about how big the universe is, it's pretty damn close, too. Number seven on my list moves down to the Georgia Guide Stones. So, the Georgia Guide Stones, I've known about them for a while. Never done a uh, a show on them. I just don't think there's enough um, material to do a whole two-hour show. But I've I've been wanting to to talk about these things for years. So I thought that you know they were mysterious enough to include on my list of top 10 unsolved mysteries. So the Georgia Guidestones are sometimes referred to as America's Stonehenge. It's 
there is part of a granite monument erected in Elbert County, Georgia, back in 1979. So they're not really all that old as far as age goes. The stones are engraved in eight languages. English, Spanish, Swahili, Hindu, Hebrew, Arabic, Chinese, and Russian. Each displaying ten new commandments for an age of reason. And they also line up with certain astronomical features. Though the monument contains no encrypted message, its purpose and origin remain shrouded in mystery. They were commissioned by a man who's yet to be properly identified who went by the pseudonym of R.C. Christian. Of the Ten Commandments, the Ten New Commandments on the stone, the first one is probably the most controversial. And this is what it says. Maintain humanity under five hundred million in perpetual balance with nature. A lot of people... Uh, say that this means that the human race, the human population, needs to be culled down to the specified number. And critics of the stones have called for them to be destroyed, just outright destroyed the whole entire monument. Now, some conspiracy theorists even believe that they may have been designed by a Luciferian secret society calling for some sort of new world order. Now, if you are a fan of the show on the History 2 channel, uh, America Unearthed, a uh, friend of the show, Scott Walter, who I interviewed uh, not too long ago, did an episode uh, of Periality Radio and uh, he he did an episode of his show, America Unearthed, uh, that had to do with the Georgia Guidestones. And he actually found the uh, loan officer, I guess, or bank president, wh- whoever the guy was that authorized this R.C. Christian to uh, get the money to build these stones. Um, he knew the guy's name. Um, he promised him that he would never reveal it. And Scott Walter tried his best to get the guy to uh, come clean with who it was. And I got to hand it to the man. He, he promised the dude he would never reveal his name and he's kept his word. He did not let Scott, uh, you know, talk him into breaking his his oath breaking his promise so i gotta hand it to him he uh can definitely keep a secret with the man so we will probably never know who this rc christian was i think unless uh he actually comes forth himself i don't think we're ever gonna know so that's my number seven on my top 10 list the georgia guidestones now we move along to number six number six are the zodiac letters now, I did a show several years ago about the Zodiac Killer. Um, one of my more popular shows, and you may be thinking, well, why in the hell did you do a, a show about an unsolved murder spree on Periality Radio? Well, because, you know, this show just doesn't deal with, with paranormal stuff. It's all things of a mysterious and unknown nature. And this is a mystery. This is a huge murder mystery. The Zodiac killings are a huge murder mystery. Now, in the 1960s, 
back, well, the 1960s of the Bay Area, California, are often remembered as a time of love and social expansion, but... In addition to that, there remains a terrible and unexplained stain on the otherwise illustrious history of that era. There's a lone and extremely elusive killer who was wandering the Bay Area streets at night back then. He was known as the Zodiac Killer because of his messages signed with some sort of Zodiac symbol. And he became one of the most infamous and terrifying killers in history. Now, he claimed to be responsible for the killings of 37 people, but investigators have only been able to confirm seven victims. So, five were murdered, two survived, and he's saying that there are 30 more out there. Um, probably never, never will know that. Now, throughout his serial killings, the Zodiac Killer would write letters to the Bay Area Press in an attempt to, you know, brag and taunt his pursuing officers. There's my creepy clock. I always got to have a creepy clock in the background. But these weren't just any ordinary letters. They were ciphers. Now, from the late 1960s to the early 1970s, the Zodiac Killer sent four coded letters. And of these four ciphers, only one has actually been solved. And that's debatable. It all depends upon how you look at this, okay? Let me let me try to explain this. His letters were written in two parts. The first part was usually written in plain text while the other was in cipher text in which he claimed contained his identity. In the plain text part, he threatened in newspapers to publish his letters or else he would kill more innocent people. In other segments of his letters, he listed the names of his next victims, creating a lot of havoc and panic among the Bay Area. And his goal was to use the media to instill fear in the citizens. And it worked. As cryptographers dug deeper into his letters, they were able to find out what drove the Zodiac Killer to keep killing. Now, as I said, of the four ciphers he sent, one was a three-part coded message sent to three different newspapers making a 408-symbol cipher. So I guess you could really take these three separate ciphers and combine them into one if you really really wanted to, or you could count them all separately. But regardless, he sent them to three different papers, and they all form one cipher. Now, his other famous cipher, uh, it contains a 340-character cipher. It's called Z340. Pretty easy, self-explanatory there. And it still doesn't have a definitive solution. Now, after the Zodiac Killer sent his 408-symbol cipher, known as Z408, he sent another message to the police saying that if they could solve that cipher, quote-unquote, they will have me. Now, in 1969, two school teachers named Donald and Betty Harden managed to crack the Z408 cipher. It offers a frightening insight into the Zodiac Killer's mind. 
According to the plain text message, he was attempting to collect slaves for the afterlife. While the plain text message gave police the reason for his serial killing, the message never mentioned his name. According to the message, he refused to give up his identity because it would slow down or stop his collection of slaves. Now, adding to the mystery is the fact that the Zodiac Killer has never been caught. Now, there's been a lot of theories that have been put forth, but they've never been proven. It's kind of like the Jack the Ripper, who we'll talk about later. Um, There's been a lot of theories put forth, but none's ever been proven. And I think the same thing will go down in history with the Zodiac Killer. Now, if you know anything about the Zodiac Killer, you will know that this guy definitely for sure used to dress up and kill his people. I mean, once again, we're going to mention Jack the Ripper. And when you hear the words Jack the Ripper, when you hear that term, you think of, you know, seedy 18th century London, a shadowy tall figure with a doctor's bag, a cape, and a, a, what they call it, a deerstalker cap. You know, and really, we don't know if this guy actually wore that getup. There's really no definitive proof that he actually wore that. But, you know, that's what, that's the image that has been portrayed of this dude over the years. The Zodiac Killer, on the other hand, he actually did have a getup. He had a costume. It was like an old executioner's hood, and he had his strange little Zodiac symbol uh, on it. And, I mean, he had uh, military boots, and he had, you know, weapons and stuff, and he actually had a costume. So whenever you think about the Zodiac Killer, at least whenever I think about the Zodiac Killer, I get that image of this guy wearing a costume. In my head. And the reason we know that he wore costumes is because that a couple of his victims did survive and described the outfit that he was wearing. So, very interesting stuff. Very creepy. And, you know, killers, serial killers, they only stop killing because they either get caught or they die. They have this unnatural urge to kill. And they, they don't just cut that switch off. So in they generally don't change their MO either. So either one of three things happened. Either he got caught for something else and spent time in jail or is still doing time in jail. He died, number two, or he changed his MO, which is highly unlikely, but I'm not going to discount it. So are we ever going to know who the Zodiac killer is? Uh, I don't think so. I think he's going to go down just like Jack the Ripper has gone down and as, you know, one who got away with it. All right, that takes us into our top five. Now we're going to talk about the Voynich Manuscript, which I just did a show on that a couple of months ago. But it makes my top five list of... unsolved mysteries. I got a little lost right there. (laughs) So the Voynich manuscript, I'm not going to spend a lot of time talking about this, 
because I just did a show on this a couple of couple of months ago. So I'm going to keep it brief here on the Voynich Manuscript. The Voynich Manuscript is named after the Polish-American antiquarian bookseller Wilfred M. Voynich, who acquired it in 1912. This book, this manuscript, is a 240-page book written in a language or script that's completely unknown. Its pages are also filled with colorful drawings of strange diagrams, odd events and plants that don't seem to match any known species, adding to the intrigue of the document and the difficulty in deciphering it. The original author of the manuscript remains unknown, but carbon dating revealed that its pages were made sometime between 1404 and 1438. And it's been called the world's most mysterious manuscript. Theories abound about the origin and the nature of this manuscript. Some believe that it was meant to be a pharmacopoeia to address topics in medieval or early modern medicine. Others believe that pictures of the herbs and plants hint that it may have been some kind of textbooks for alchemists. And the fact that many diagrams appear to be of astronomical origin combined with the unidentifiable biological drawings has even led some theorists to propose that the book may have some sort of an alien origin to it. One thing that most theorists agree on is the book is unlikely to be a hoax given the amount of time, money, and detail that would have been required to make this. Now, just a, a few months ago, a couple of months ago, I did an episode on the Voynich Manuscript. So that's all I'm going to say about it tonight. If you want to learn more about the Voynich Manuscript, go back in the archives and look for the Voynich Manuscript show. I just did it a couple of months ago. And you'll be able to get loads, tons of information about the manuscript. I'm sure that you've probably heard about it. If you're listening to a radio show like this, you probably heard about the Voynich Manuscript. So if you want to know more, if you happen to miss that episode, go back, look on the archives, look in the archives. Like I said, it's just a couple of months old. I did it at the end of the year, last year. So you can find out a little bit more, or a lot more actually, about the Voynich manuscript. So that moves us to number four. So before I do anything about uh, number four, let's, let me go back. I'm going to count down the 10 through six. Number 10, Severed Foot Beach. Number nine, The Ever-Burning Lamps. Number eight, The Wow Signal. Number seven, The Georgia Guidestones. Number six, The Zodiac Letters. We just talked about my number five most mysterious, most most mysterious unsolved mystery, the Voynich Manuscript. Now we're going to move on to number four, the Shugborough inscription. What the hell is the Shugborough inscription, you say? Well, I'm about to tell you. I'm glad that you asked what the Shugborough inscription is. Look f- from afar at the 18th century Shepherd's Monument in Staffordshire, England, and you might take it as nothing more than a sculptured recreation of Nicholas Poussin's famous painting, Arcadian Shepherds. But if you take a closer look, you'll notice a curious sequence of letters. The letters D-O-U-V-E. 
excuse me, D-O-U-S-V-A-V-V-M. Those letters, once again, since I screwed it up, D-O-U-O-S-V-A-V-V-M. This is a possible code, and it's eluded decipherment for over 250 years. Though the identity of the code carver remains a mystery, there's been a lot of speculation that the code could be a clue left behind by the Knights Templar about the whereabouts of the Holy Grail. Many of the world's greatest minds have tried to crack this code, and they failed, including Charles Dickens and Charles Darwin. How about that, huh? For 250 years, this thing has defied all code breakers. Like I said, Darwin had a go, Dickens, Wedgwood too. But the 10-letter inscription, the D-O-U-O-S-V-A-V-V-M, carved into this monument at the Shugborough Estate in Staffordshire, has just continually flipped off all of these people and says, F you, you're not going to decipher me. Those of a romantic or maybe even, should I say, a deluded disposition believe this thing's a coded message of the kind used by the Knights Templar and or their successors to point to the whereabouts of the Holy Grail or or maybe even some other religious relic. Now, others believe it's some sort of private affirmation of love. Recently, there's been an unnamed American person who was formerly involved with the military who used um, the the painting that's associated with this um, inscription as a key to unlock the code. Now, the, um, the painting is based upon a um, uh, relief that was painted by Poussin, and it's called Et in Arcadia Ego. And Poussin was thought to be a member of the Templars. Now, the monument carries the title of the painting and below are those 10 letters with the D at the beginning and the M at the end, and it's just slightly lowered. And like I said, there's a, a, an American here who has rem, remain un, who wants to remain anonymous, and supposedly he was a former um, military officer or something, and he says that he's unlocked this code. And I don't know how he came about it, but supposedly he came up with the words Jesus H. Defy. And he interprets the H as Chi, the C-H-I, the the Greek letter used to denote the Messiah. So in other words, what he's saying is that this is a Templar message that defies the description of Jesus as the Son of God. Now, like I said, this guy refuses to be identified, but it doesn't matter. He keeps saying that there are other messages that reside in the Matrix, but we don't really know. Um, some might think that this discovery is less than convincing. I'm one of those people, um, but there's definitely something that's there, although I just don't know what. Now, there's another person by the name of Sheila Lawn. She's an 81-year-old code breaker 
during, and she was doing this uh, in World War II, and she's favored a solution offered by another team, and they say that the eight central letters represent a Latin poem to a departed loved one, which goes, Optima Uxoris, Optima Soris, Vedus, Adamantissimus, Vovit, Virtilobus. And the line translates as best wife, best sister, widower, most loving vows virtuously. And she says that the reason she believes this is because it's a simple approach and it appears to be an elegant solution according to what she says. So, you know, is it um, solved? No. Uh, That's why it's on the top 10 list of unsolved mysteries. Uh, it's been featured in a few documentaries. Uh, one um, is called uh, Bloodline, and it came out, I believe, in 2008. And uh, it was, um, it had to do with the Templars and um, Priory of Sion and all that sorts of stuff, which, by the way, there was an actual Priory of Sion. But it's not like the one that's in the Da Vinci Code, and it's not like the one that was uh, supposedly revealed to be in Holy Blood, Holy Grail, that book. Um, I don't think that there's anything to the Priory of Sion. I don't think it was supposedly what people are trying to make it out to be. Um, Anyway, this documentary, Bloodlines, has some stuff about the Shugborough... Um, inscription in it. Uh, Unfortunately, um, the Bloodlines um, documentary had some falsivities to it. Um, The part with the Templar grave and all that other sorts of stuff was complete bunk. The guy who was involved in that uh, totally uh, pulled the wool over the eyes of the producer and director and everyone shooting the film. Um, So uh, it's not uh, the it lost its credibility. So anyway, you check it out. Bloodlines. You can, uh, it's on Amazon prime, probably on Netflix. If you want to know a little bit more about that situation. So that gets us, uh, all the way through number four. Now we're going to move on to the top three, the, uh, top three lists. You may not agree with what I've got on my top three list, but I personally think that these are the top three most, um, the, the the biggest top three unsolved mysteries um, in the world, according to me. So number three, we're going to be talking about the uh, Jetlov Pass incident. In January of 1959, 23-year-old Igor Dyatlov led a group of eight young Soviet hikers comprising seven men and two women who most of them were university students into the Ural Mountains attempting to reach Mount Ortonton from the small settlement of Vishai. Now it took more than three months to locate all of their bodies. They were found about six miles away from their destination in a forest almost a mile away from their campsite. They didn't have their skis, 
shoes, or coats. And the weather was approximately minus 30 degrees Fahrenheit. Now, two of them had skull fractures. Two more had major chest fractures. And one hiker was even missing her tongue. Soviet investigators listed the cause of death as, and this is a quote, a compelling natural force. And they just abruptly closed the case not even a month later. So here's what we know about the incident. Six of the skiers died of hypothermia and three died of injuries. Now, they all died separately. Two of them were found under a cedar tree near the remains of a fire. So obviously they were trying to keep warm. And three others were found in intervals of hundreds of feet from the tree. And four more were in a ravine another uh, 250 feet away. The two under the tree had burned hands. For I'm assuming they were trying to keep their hands warm in the fire. The four in the ravine weren't found until the 4th of May, which was a full three months after the incident. The dead seemed to have donated some of their clothing to the living. Um, one uh, person's foot was wrapped in a piece of uh, clothing from one of the others, supposedly the dead person donated a piece of their clothes so someone else could wrap their foot in it. While um, there was uh, one that was found wearing um, somebody else's hat and coat and some garments had cuts in them like they were forcibly removed. Consistently, there were eight or nine sets of footprints in the snow accounting for only the skiers and not suggesting another party's involvement, at least not on foot. There was no sign of struggle or of any other human or animal approaching the campsite. Now, there was a snowstorm the night of February 2nd, which is when it was determined via their diaries that they died. Now, how do we know that, you know, clothing was donated from the dead and given to the living and blah, blah, blah. Well, because of, of pictures, they were taking pictures um, documenting their whole um, journey. So in the pictures, you can tell who's wearing what. And then when the bodies were found and identified, they were wearing someone else's clothes. Now, speaking of the campsite, it was made on the slopes of what is known as Dead Mountain at about... 3,600 feet. All of the travelers, all eight of them, were in their early to mid-20s. Except, Well, except for one, there was one guy who was in his late 30s. Now, all of them, though, were experienced mountaineers. They'd skied across frozen lakes in totally uninhabited areas to get there. There's my creepy clock chiming in. Now, despite nasty weather and a slower progress than they'd planned, their last diary entries reflected high spirits. 
And in a very typical way of Soviet bonding, they even produced a little newspaper about the trip, which they called the Evening Ottenen, which bore the headline, From now on, we know that the snowmen exist. And it goes on to say that they can be met in the northern Urals next to uh, Orton the Mountain. They were, it's thought, probably jokingly referring to themselves, but maybe not. And we'll discuss that here in just a second. Now, after the first five bodies were found, a legal inquest began, eventually determining that the cause of death was hypothermia. The death seemed kind of straightforward, at least at first. Now, okay, sure, these these dead people were in various stages of undress, including one dude in his underwear, but this was explained away as paradoxical undressing, which happens in about 25% of hypothermia cases, as the 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 hypothalamus in your brain malfunctions and the body temperature seems to rise to the victim when it's actually dropping. But then things got really super weird here. The skier's badly damaged tent, it was determined, had been cut open from the inside and all of their stuff was still in it. Why were they dead of exposure if they'd had access to their winter gear before going out in the freezing winds. To all appearances, they appeared to have left the tent out of their own free will and in a hurry. Now, bizarrely, one guy fled the camp with his camera, but not any of his, like, real gear. And as well, there's there's a, another couple of guys who seem to have died in a pose indicating that they were trying to go back to the tent. Um, one of them had a small skull fracture or skull crack, but it was ruled that the elements were what killed him and not his injury. No external wounds were found on this guy. Things got really messed up when the four bodies in the ravine were found and examined, and two of them had fractured ribs, while a third had a major skull fracture. And one of the investigators compared the force required to injure a human so severely as to that of a car crash. The injuries were absolutely not caused by force exerted by another human being. <clears throat> Excuse me. Once again, no soft tissue dan- damage was observed. It's like the, the skier's bodies were crushed by some sort of pressure. And then the other person in the ravine was found to, the, a female, she was found to be missing her tongue. And the theory of another party's possible involvement must have arisen. So, right? So, who who, who would do this, though? Why? Or, or, or did another skier, you know, from the group cut it out for some reason? Or were they going to 
cut it out and roast it on the fire that was burning in the tree and eat it? Where'd it go? But there, there weren't, there were really absolutely no indications of other people having been nearby apart from the other travelers in Dietlov's group. And not even the natives of that area, the Mansi people, who sometimes known to, to be violent, um, they weren't even in the area upon investigation. And perhaps most baffling of all, some of the skiers' clothing was found to contain significant levels of radiation. And due to, quote, an absence of a guilty party, the inquest was closed in May of 1959, only just a few short weeks after the last four bodies were discovered. And the files were archived and classified. And when they finally became accessible in the 1990s, the the post-Soviet era, Parts of them were even missing, mysteriously enough. So without any real public answers to any of these freaky questions, all manner of insane theories came around, and the incident over the next 50 years uh, got really just, there's all kinds of messed up theories, as you can imagine, but, but the Soviet government's, very sudden closing of the case seems to have made it the most popular culprit in the minds of the theorists. Now, one thing that is being said is that orange spheres were sighted in the sky on the night that the the Dietlov group died. And and these spheres were spotted by campers about 50 miles away from the scene. Uh, Some explained away these... um, as, of course, you know, being lies or whatever. Um, some explain these as uh, R-7 intercontinental missile launches, uh, seeing as the last campsite was located on the pathway from uh, um, a nuclear testing ground. Um, and... and Per the radiation found in the skiers' clothing, some speculated that they drank melted, contaminated snow. Um, could that have driven them crazy? I don't know. I guess anything's possible. There's a 12-year-old eyewitness who attended five of the skiers' funerals, and he claimed that the bodies had a deep brown tan. And you can't talk conspiracies here and radiation in the same sentence anyway without mentioning aliens and ufos of course um some people have even blamed the snowmen referenced in the students newspapers remember i said we were going to be uh getting back to that so here's here's the the snow here's something about the snowman reference okay now there's supposedly a picture that was taken by one of the hikers that shows a blurry image of what appears to be a tall, dark, hairy, hulking figure in a tree line, leading some to speculate that this is a Yeti, which went on to kill the Dietlov group because they were encroaching on its territory. Now, I have seen said picture in question. It supposedly... The real deal. It supposedly came from the Dietlov party. 
And it's very convincing looking that this is something or someone that was not with the party. I mean, it's very creepy looking. Now, if this is actually a picture from the camera of one of the hikers, it's very astonishing and could blow the lid off of not only this case, but the whole abominable snowman slash Sasquatch thing. Cause it's very, very convincing. Um, of course, like I said, it's, it's blurry. It's not clear. Uh, it only looks like, uh, maybe a hairy silhouette of something. So, you know, I, the jury is still going to have to be out on that. But, um, if it was a Yeti that was in the picture, um, it very well could have been what killed them, but that does not explain the absence of footprints. So, you know, who, who knows to this day, a scientific explanation for the deaths of these nine people has yet to be nailed down. The mountain pass where the skiers set up their last campsite was named for Dietlov, hence the Dietlov Pass. And there's a foundation called the Dietlov Foundation. Um, and uh, it was formed by the 12-year-old eyewitness at the skiers' funeral in 1959. And this... The little kid who grew up and formed this foundation still works to persuade the Russian government to reopen the investigation. Um, as a matter of fact, the, the foundation operates the Dietlov Museum, and uh, well, it, it commemorates the the dead travelers and tells the story of their strange ends. So this has been going on since 1959. And we still have no idea. All kind of weird, kooky theories out there. Still no idea what in the hell killed those nine people. That brings us to number two. My number two on my top ten list of unsolved mysteries is Jack the Ripper. I told you we were going to be getting to him here in a little while. So here we have come to Jack the Ripper He's probably number one on a lot of people's list. Not mine, though. But he does take the two spot, the number two spot. So, Jack the Ripper. Well, you know, by today's standards of crime, Jack the Ripper would barely make the headlines because he only murdered a mere five prostitutes in a huge slum swarming with criminals. Just one more, you know, he was just one more violent creep satisfying his perverted needs out on the, you know, on the dregs of society. No one would be pissed off as were the respectable families of the pretty college students that were, you know, Ted Bundy's victims, let's say, you know, or, or the children tortured and mutilated by John Wayne Gacy. You know, these were, you know, let's face it. These were nasty hookers in a nasty area. Hookers get killed all the time. Prostitutes, you know, so, so what? 
You know, what really, what we've become a society numbered by horrible crimes inflicted upon its many victims. You know, this was just, this was, you know, five, five hoes got killed, you know, in, in the slums. So, you know, not really, um, that bad. I mean, even, um, the Green River killer, Gary Ridgway, I mean, he was killing hoes. He was killing prostitutes, hookers, whatever you want to call them. Um, he was killing them on the strip. And he did it, you know, more than five, and he did it for uh, years and years and years. You know, that something like that, that's sensational. If you're going to kill five street-walking whores in the slums, eh, you know, you'll get talked about on the local news maybe. But if you're going to kill a bunch of whores on a strip, you're going to kill 30 of them, you know, and bury them and shit, you know, without no one noticing it, that knowing that you've done it. That was the thing with the Green River Killer, you know. But anyway, I'm not going to get I'm not going to start talking about the Green River Killer. So anyway, so, um, <clears throat> well, why then over a hundred years later are there allegedly more books written on Jack the Ripper than all of the American presidents combined? Why are there stories and songs and movies and a never-ending stream of books on this one Victorian criminal? Why is this symbol of terror as popular a subject today as he was back in Victorian London? Well, I'll tell you. It's because Jack the Ripper represents the classic whodunit. Not only is this case an enduring unsolved mystery that professional and amateur sleuths have tried to solve for over a hundred years, but the story has a terrifying, almost supernatural type quality to it. Think about it. He comes from out of the fog. He kills violently and quickly, and then he disappears without a trace. Then, for no apparent reason, his bloodlust, it's satisfied, and the, the the killings, they became more and more ferocious, more intense, culminating in the near destruction of his final final victim. And like I said, he, 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 he gets satisfied and then he vanishes from the scene forever. It's This makes the perfect ingredients for the perennial thriller, right? Now, before looking at specific suspects... Let's summarize what's known about Jack the Ripper from forensic surgeons and possible eyewitnesses. Now, from the testimony of the various eyewitnesses which police took most seriously, certain probabilities emerge about the killer. Now, you need to keep in mind the, the word probable here because eyewitness accounts particularly under conditions of dim lighting, are notoriously inaccurate in certain details, even when offered by honest and competent eyewitnesses. Now, before I give you this list of, of probabilities about the Ripper, I, I want to preface this by saying, once again, I did a show... Um, on Jack the Ripper. As a matter of fact, I did two shows on Jack the Ripper. I did one about the murders 
and about it being unsolved. And then I did another special show just focusing on the suspects. So, you know, I'd done four hours worth of material just on Jack the Ripper alone. And there's lots, lots more than just four hours out there. That's not even scratching the tip of the iceberg on what can be done with Jack the Ripper here. Okay. So, um, those will be replaying. You will be able to get a chance to hear those shows. And some of the um, suspects that I'm going to be talking about are the same as the suspects that I talked about on my JTR suspect show. Some are not. Um, however, this is such a hugely broad topic that I can't possibly work it. I can't work everything into this little segment here on Jack the Ripper. Okay. So if you want to know more, um, whenever my shows start to replay on Jack the Ripper, whenever those episodes turn up in the replay, you need to, you need to listen to them. If you'd like to, um, hear them beforehand, just send me an email, sandman at parareality.com. And let me know you want to hear those shows early. And I may just, uh, pop them up on the playlist a little bit earlier. So here we go. Here's a following list of probabilities about Jack the Ripper. He was a white male. He was of average or below average height. He was between 20 and 40 years old back in 1888. He did not dress as a laborer or an indigent poor person. He had lodgings in the East End. He had some sort of medical expertise, despite one or two opinions to the, to the contrary. He may have been a foreigner. He was right-handed. He had a regular job since the murders all occurred on weekends. And he was single so that he could roam the streets at all hours of the night. So those are some pretty good probabilities that we've got about Jack the Ripper. Now, developing persuasive cases about Jack the Ripper suspects has become a profitable cottage industry for at least a hundred years. Many of the books promote one suspect or another as the quote unquote real Jack the Ripper. Now, usually the author of these books conveniently compiles evidence that fits his or her pet theory and just ignores the facts that don't support that theory. Now, given the vast number of suspects and books promoting particular suspects, a reader needs to be very skeptical of any new, quote-unquote, final solutions to the crimes. Now, the list of suspects has been estimated as high as 500. That's a lot, man. If you count each and every screwball theory out there, you'll get to around 500, okay? I'm not going to list them all, but I'm going to give you... 10 and only 10 suspects. Number one is Sir William Gull. This is probably the most well-known theory thanks to movies like, uh, what is it, From Hell and Murder by Decree, as, as well as the connections the theory has to royalty, which have ensured that many people know something about this idea. It goes like this. It, it, the premise is that uh, 
Queen Victoria's grandson and heir to the throne, Prince Albert Victor, the Duke of Clarence, conceived a child with a Catholic prostitute and married her in a Catholic ceremony. The idea of a Catholic heir to the throne in a Protestant nation was seen as something that the Queen could not contend with, did not want to deal with, and so when this was found out, Victoria employed Sir William Gull as a royal assassin, along with Joseph Netley and Walter Sickert as accomplices, and they systematically uh, wiped out um, the five prostitutes until they found the right one. Number two, James Maybrick. Now, in the early 90s, there was a discovery which was made that would change the fabric of Ripper lore and Ripper investigations forever. There was a diary that was given to this dude named uh, Michael Barrett that put forward information about the identity of Jack the Ripper written supposedly in the hand of the Ripper himself. The person who wrote this diary was soon discovered to be a band named James Maybrick, who was a cotton merchant from Liverpool who would take the lives of prostitutes in order to take out his anger over an unfaithful wife. Now, I want you to know I'm just like touching the tip of the iceberg on each of these suspects because I'm not going into all of that here on this little episode, okay? The third suspect is Joseph Barnett. He was the partner of Mary Kelly. Uh, Barnett had loved Kelly and had tried to get her to quit her life of prostitution and heavy alcoholism. However, when his employment and financial status didn't improve, Kelly thought that it was necessary to once again sell her body. Now, the relationship between the two was seemed to be strained at best, with Kelly drinking more and more and indulging in acts of physical violence when drunk. And this is according to records of the inquest. Barnett, therefore, attempted to scare Kelly off the streets by enacting the Ripper murders, killing four of her known associates. And when these methods didn't sway her, and when she, in fact, left Barnett on her own free will, he then proceeded to murder her, explaining why her murder was the last and the most bloody. Now, there's no, absolutely no um, proof that the women knew each other whatsoever, I don't think so. That does make a very good theory, though, um, as far as, you know, him killing her last and it being the most bloody because it was personal, right? Uh, the number four suspect is Rosalind Stevenson. Rosalind Stevenson was a member of one of the numerous societies in Victorian London fascinated with the occult. His essays for various periodicals published the ideas of uh, necromancy and power through ritualism and became known to two women who themselves were interested in similar subjects. They were uh, Victoria Crimmins and Mabel Collins. Now, Stevenson became a lover of sorts to um, Victoria Crimmins and confessed all sorts of information and later, he claimed that he knew the person who was Jack the Ripper. Now, Collins believed that Stevenson did this to imply that he himself was actually the killer without culpability, without saying, in other words, without saying that he was. 
and Collins remained convinced that Stevenson was Jack the Ripper right up until the the last day of her life, claiming that although he was a patient in the London hospital for neurasthesia, he managed to use it as his base of operations while he committed the crimes. That's a little far-fetched, right? But it is one of the theories that's out there. Number five, George Chapman. Chapman is a serial killer. That much is known publicly, was known to the police, who tried and convicted him for the murder of several women. And he, he did this by poison, okay? At the trial, former Inspector Frederick Aberline, who had been one of the policemen in charge of the Ripper case, said to a colleague that they had caught Jack the Ripper at last, or, or you know, kind of words to that effect. Chapman was born under the name of uh, Kowalski, and at the time of the murders, he certainly was around the Whitechapel area, and there are a lot of people who claim that the idea of a Polish Jew being the Ripper murderer was more substantial than just mere xenophobia. So, you know, um, it's, it's a probability, or it's a possibility. Probable, I don't know, but it's definitely a possibility. Number six is Montague Druitt. Druitt had the dubious honor of being arguably the first serious suspect that was ever looked at by, excuse me, both uh, police and ripperologists. <clears throat> from what we can glean from the papers drawn up by former police assistant uh, commissioner Sir Melville McNaughton, Druitt was a loner and a possible sexual deviant whose own horror over committing these crimes led him to commit suicide by drowning himself in the Thames. That explains why the murders ceased after the death of Mary Kelly. And McNaughton also claims that some of Druitt's own family had fears about him being the Ripper. So, once again, very possible, probable, I don't know. We move on to the number seven suspect. That leads us to Walter Sickert. Walter Sickert was among the most important English artists of the past 150 years. He was also part of the London artistic scene during 1888, along with such people as Oscar Wilde and James Whistler. His name as a Ripper suspect really has been only relatively recent, but there's no doubt that he did have some interesting connections to the crimes because he did paint Mary Kelly and possibly other victims of the Ripper. Also, he was really interested in the case, painting several, having, having done several paintings from the perspective of the killer and said to have dined out on the murders for some years afterwards, telling various tall tales and rumors relating to the Ripper. Uh, um, Patricia Cornwell devoted an entire book to the... Um, to proving that Walter Sickert was Jack the Ripper. Now, once again, is it a possibility? Yes, probably. I really don't know. Um, I, I, I read the book, uh, Jack the Ripper, Case Closed, I think it was, um, by Patricia Cornwell. Very good book. Very uh, the, the evidence pretty convincing. Um, but once again, you gotta you gotta look at the fact that you know she she is a, a, a author, 
And she did have as her agenda pro- trying to prove that Walter Sickert was Jack the Ripper. So, you know, anyway, viable suspect. So we got three more suspects to talk about. Number eight, David Cohen, also known as Nathan Kaminsky, possibly one of the least romantic suspects that's come forth in the last 125 years. Um, There's no doubt, however, a lot to consider in Cohen's favor as a possible ripper. Former Assistant Commissioner Sir Robert Anderson had claimed that the ripper had been identified after he was admitted to an asylum as a poor Polish Jew of the Whitechapel area. Now, this profile fits Cohen, whose real name was supposedly Nathan Kaminsky, perfectly. Furthermore, while in the asylum, he was shown to be particularly violent both towards himself, fellow inmates, and staff. So, he did have a history of violence. I don't know that um, he's a viable candidate, but he's on, on the list of suspects, so there you go. The number nine suspect is William Henry Burry. Now, he's yet another recent suspect, and the case for this guy being the Ripper begins with the death of his wife, Ellen. When police came to see the body, they found her with horrific mutilations that were reminiscent of the Ripper victims. And, written in chalk on a wall were the words... Jack the Ripper is in the cellar. Hmm. Very interesting on that, right? Um, Clearly the guy was cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs. Does that make him the Ripper? Not necessarily. And now we come to the last one. Not not last on on the list by any means. The last that you're going to hear about on this list, though, my number 10, Francis Tumblety. Francis Tumblety was... He was a quack doctor from Canada who was known to travel the the United Kingdom to ply his wares, work his trade, whatever. Tumulty was flamboyant, and he made many esoteric connections, including having a famous dinner with Bram Stoker, author of Dracula, right? Tumulty was arrested right after the Kelly murder, after which he was released. And what makes him suspicious is that After he was released, he proceeded to get the hell out of the United Kingdom with with just like all due speed and proceeded to New York and then basically disappeared off the map completely. Now, the suspicion is backed up by the so-called Little Child Letter of 1913 in which Tumble T is put forward as a major suspect. So, like I said, that just scratches, barely scratches the surface of of the around 500 named suspects as being Jack the Ripper. Um, And like I said, I didn't get into a a whole bunch about each of them, just kind of scratching the surface on each of of those just a little bit. Um, You want to know more, you look them up. I'll let you do your own research on that. Because uh, that's a whole series of shows right there uh, that I'm not getting into at this point in time. So, it, despite the thousands of hours of work on this case, there's really not yet one suspect for which a strong, unimpeachable case can be made, and probably never will be. 
but one remains hopeful that someday a suspect will emerge with better credentials than the ones that I just talked about. So that brings us all the way to number one on my top 10 unsolved mysteries. So let's count them down to where we're at so far. Sandman's top 10 unsolved mysteries of all time. Number 10, Severed Foot Beach. Number 9, The Ever-Burning Lamps. Number 8, The Wow Signal. Number 7, The Georgia Guidestones. Number 6, The Zodiac Letters. Number 5, The Voynich Manuscript. Number 4, The Shugborough Inscription. Number three, the Diet Law of Pass incident. Number two, Jack the Ripper. And what's my number one most unsolved mystery of all time? Well, you'll find out after this short little break, and I'll reveal my number one unsolved mystery. I'll be right back after this. Enjoy it.
Hello, everybody. This is Sandman. I want to thank you for listening to Parareality Radio, and I'd like to invite you to check out my side project. It's called Set It Off. It's a half-hour-long show where I vent my frustrations about anything from politics, religion, pop culture, and celebrities to rude people, stupid people, or that guy who drives too slow in the fast lane. It can be just about anything that, well, sets me off. It can only be heard on Spreaker and on Facebook. Just go to Spreaker.com and search for Set It Off. Or listen to it on my Facebook page, which is Sandman.Parareality. There's no set schedule for the show because it's completely random. So check for new episodes often. Remember, it's called Set It Off, and you never know what I'm going to say next. All right, so it is time to reveal my number one unsolved mystery. The number one greatest unsolved mystery of all time, according to me, Sandman. Now, I've already counted down from number 10 to number 2 right before the break, so that just leaves one more. And according to me, the number one greatest unsolved mystery of all time is the lost colony of Roanoke. Now, if you've listened to any of my shows in the past, you know that I've done a few, more than one, show relating to the lost colony of Roanoke. And um, I just, um, I have a special place in my heart for this topic and uh, I'll reveal why in just a little bit, just in case you haven't uh, heard any of the past shows that I've done. Uh, when I was back on Live 365, I did several shows on this topic and had some guests in studio, on the phone, and uh, it was always, always a very popular topic. So why are you thinking would that be the number one most unsolved mystery? Well, this is just my opinion. This is my show, right? So this is my countdown. This is my opinion. The origins of one of America's oldest unsolved mysteries can be traced all the way back in time to August of 1587. That was when a group of around about 115 English settlers arrived on Roanoke Island off the coast of what's now North Carolina. Later that year, it was decided that the governor of the new colony, a man named John White, would set sail all the way back to England in order to gather a fresh load of supplies. But just as he got there, a major naval war broke out between England and Spain, and Queen Elizabeth I called on every available ship to go to war with the Spanish Armada. So... His trip back was delayed by three years. So in August of 1590 was when he was finally able to return to Roanoke where he had left his wife and daughter and his infant granddaughter who was Virginia Dare, the first English child born in the New World here in the Americas. Of course, and all the other settlers were there. It's where he left them three long years before. 
Unfortunately, when he got back, he found no trace of the colony or its inhabitants and only a few clues as to what might have happened apart from the most famous clue, which was a single word, Croaton, carved into a wooden post. And no one has seen hide nor hair of the colonists since then. No one really has any definitive proof as to what happened to them. Investigations into the fate of the lost colony of Roanoke have continued for, gosh, well, ever since they disappeared over the centuries. But like I said, no one's come up with any kind of satisfactory answer. So here are five popular theories as to what could have possibly happened to these colonists at Roanoke. And number one is that the people of Roanoke Island simply left the settlement. Now, this is one of the more probable theories. It's said that they supposedly left Roanoke Island and started settling in the Chesapeake Bay area. It's also thought that they may have built rafts or a boat of some sort using materials that were torn apart from their houses. Close to 20 years had passed before John Smith and his group started the well-known settlement of Jamestown, where that's where the popular story of Pocahontas takes place. But the the settlement of Jamestown was near uh, the Chesapeake Bay. And the, the evidence in this tale is that the ruler of the natives uh, indeed did admit to killing the colonists. They said that they had been in their land, the Chesapeake Bay area, and were then annihilated to prevent more English settlers from stealing their land. Like I said, this is one of the more probable theories, although, like I said, there's no definitive proof of this or any of the other theories, but this is one of the ones that makes the most sense. The second theory is that the whole population of Roanoke Island was killed by a disease. Now, this is kind of uh, an absurd theory. Now, it it is true that the English had brought over some diseases here to the New World. However, there were no bodies found. There, uh, the, the houses had disappeared. So that kind of makes that theory a very weak one at best. And the, the houses disappearing part, that goes back to the first theory that they built some boats and out, maybe out of the houses and left because when um, John White came back in uh, 1590, remember that uh, he found there there were no houses. So maybe they dismantled the homes, the houses, and built some sort of a boat or something. So, you know, it's, it's a possibility, but the, how, the disease would not explain why all the, the houses were gone. You know, you could say, well, maybe they had to tear apart the houses to build coffins to bury the dead. Well, maybe that's true, but then there would have been at least one person that was left there after he had buried or she had buried everybody else, and you would think there would be some sort of body or something found. But no, there was never any bodies found. So the number two theory, the disease theory, weak at best, like I said. Number three is that the village was destroyed by a severe storm like a hurricane. Okay, that's another one of these improbable theories. A hurricane 
could have washed away the colonists, every one of them, and destroyed their houses. Yes, okay, that's true. But the huge problem with this theory is that, there. remember, there was a fence, and the fence was still standing. So I don't think that it would be possible for a storm that powerful to come through and do all the damage, like clearing away, you know, the whole settlement, everybody that was there, all the living beings and the houses, and then leave a fence standing. You know, um, I think that's uh, very improbable. Now, now there were, are people who will say, well, you know, Mother Nature can do some weird things, you know, take tornadoes, for example. They can drive a two-by-four through a tree or through your house or something like that, and then, you know, some of the most delicate porcelain doll furniture or whatever that was in the room is left untouched or whatever. You know, I have survived through... Uh, one, two, three hurricanes in my life and a couple of tornadoes. Um, they do some freaky things, but I, I just don't think that if a hurricane came through and destroyed all the houses, raised them all, that it was going to leave a fence in the dirt standing. And, and plus, what are the chances that all the bodies, all the living people, would have gotten washed out to sea. It would have to have been something like a freaking tsunami or something, you know? So once again, it's a theory, but a weak one. Highly unlikely that that happened. Now, number four is that the colonists were killed by the Native Americans. Now, this is one of the more probable of all the theories. One important fact that supports this theory is that the English had tried to start the colony of Roanoke before, a little over a year had passed since they first started the colony. This colony was run by a man named Ralph Lane after Sir Richard Grenville, who had transported the colonists to Virginia, returned to Britain for supplies. Now, these colonists were really very poorly prepared and not particularly clever, apparently, because although they depended upon the local Indians, or Native Americans, should I say, for food, they also antagonized these same Native Americans by doing things like kidnapping them and, and holding them hostage in exchange for information. Now, unfortunately for the colonists who were desperately in need of these supplies, Grenville's return was delayed, you know, his forerunner of what happened earlier or later. And as a result, when Sir Francis Drake returned to pick up the colonists, he left behind 15 of his own men all of who were never heard from again. It was supposedly verified by that the Native Americans killed these people. If that's true, this establishes a pattern, and it proves that the Native Americans were capable of hiding bodies very well. So, one of once again, we have two very probable ones, and two not so probable probably really would, would not happen. So that brings us to number five, which is what I believe and a lot of other people in this country believe. And it's something that if you have never heard any of my prior shows on this topic before, this is something that will probably be very new to you and may no doubt even shock you. So the number five theory is that the people of Roanoke decided to leave Roanoke Island to live with the Native Americans. 
Now you're saying, okay, well, that's not so shocking. Why did you say this was going to be shocking? You know, that sounds like it's a very probable theory and you probably may have heard that. All right. So this theory is definitely probable. Very highly probable. Croton, which was carved into the post. Remember that was that mysterious name carved into the post. Croton was the name of an island in the area. And it was also the name of the group of the very friendly Native Americans that inhabited that island. Now, it's possible that the colonists decided to go live with the natives of Croton. Though there's not been a whole lot of evidence to prove this theory, or any of the other ones, by the way, there's also been no evidence against it. Now, here's going to come where I say is the part you may not have heard before, and that's kind of shocking if you've never heard it, there are some people, a lot of people, myself included, who believe descendants of the colonists now reside in Robinson County, North Carolina. In Robinson County, there are the Lumbee Indians. That's a tribe with 60,000 plus members, and they've lived in that area for centuries. Now, many Lumbee are confident that their ancestors migrated from the Outer Banks to the swampy marshland that's now Robinson County. One primary advocate of this theory was a man named Adolph K. Dial, who was a Lumbee historian, and he wrote a book in 1975 called The Only Land I Know. And this book, it details the history of his people, including one assertion that Dial was very sure of. And this is what he wrote, and I quote, While proof of Lumbee descent from the lost colony in the form of birth records and other documents is most unlikely to be found, the circumstantial evidence, when joined with the logic, unquestionably supports the Lumbee tradition that there was a real and lasting connection with the Raleigh settlement. Now, proponents, that what, what that's saying is, they integrated with the Native Americans, okay? Basically, that's what that's saying. Now, proponents of the Lost Colony Lumbee connection point to how and how white the tribe became, okay? Um, the, the, the Lumbee people have long spoken English and followed Protestant religious traditions they didn't undergo the forced migrations that other Native Americans, American tribes suffered through because of their mixed race status and because the tribe actually enacted early agreements with various governmental bodies to avoid displacement and a lot of the, the more gross forms of injustice. Now, the, today, the Lumbee are one of the most prosperous, prosperous and educated tribes in the United States, think thanks largely to the University of North Carolina in Pembroke, which is a university that was originally founded in 1887 as a school for the Lumbee. It was founded not only as a school for the Lumbee, it was founded by the Lumbee. And it used to be called Pembroke University. It has now been absorbed into the, the UNC family, and it's now known as UNC Pembroke. Very, very 
good school produces a lot of uh, has a lot of history behind it. Um, now, while there is no concrete proof that the Lumbee are descendants of the Lost Colony of Roanoke, the circumstantial evidence is overwhelming. The connections to too many dots can be made for it just to be ignored, and with a little luck, one day the doubts will be put to rest. And a lot of the surnames of the Lumbee people match up exactly with the surnames of the list of colonists who were on Roanoke that disappeared. So you've got that. You've got the fact that the if you look at the Lumbee, and when I say Lumbee, it's L-U-M-B-E-E, Lumbee. When you look at the Lumbee people, they don't look Native American, and they don't look white either. They get mistaken a lot of times for Mexicans. Um, and their dialect, I, I don't know if you could put a name to it. It Maybe it's the an Outer Bank dialect. I don't know, but the, the, the dialect is... Um, one of the most unusual that I have ever heard in my whole entire life. Uh, their mannerisms, the, the way that the, the way that they speak, the, the way that they their English flows, and the words that they use, once again, very unique. They they're the actually the largest Eastern band of Native American people in the United States. And when I say East, I mean you know, of course, east of the Mississippi. But they're federally unrecognized. The United States government will not officially recognize them because they don't look Indian. They don't act Indian. They don't talk Indian. They don't have a native language. And they don't have a lot of the traditions that you would put as being a Native American tradition. But yet these people are Native American people. I've known several Lumbee. And friends with several Lumbee. Um, shoot, I, uh, I'm not ashamed to to uh, admit it, but uh, I sleep with the Lumbee every night. And it was actually um, through her that I found out about this connection. And I've read Adolf K. Dow's book, which is a very good book. Now, you have to kind of be a history buff uh, to enjoy something like that. It's not for everybody. But if you get a chance to look up the Lumbee, L-U-M-B-E-E, the Lumbee, the Lumbee Nation on uh, the interwebs there, I suggest you do it. So um, I'm going to get off my soapbox on that now. But that's my number one greatest unsolved mystery. It's the Lumbee, the lost tribe, the lost colony of Roanoke. Did they merge in with the Native Americans of the area and become the Lumbee people. I think they did. So looking back, number 10, Severed Foot Beach. Number nine. Oh gosh, where did it go? All oh, my countdown went and disappeared. <laughs> okay, so we'll have to go number 10, Severed Foot Beach. Okay. Number nine, The Ever Burning Lamps. Number eight, the wow signal. Number seven, the Georgia Guidestones. 
Number six, the Zodiac Letters. Number five, the Voynich Manuscript. Number four, the Shugborough Inscription. Number three, the Detlov Pass Incident. Number two, Jack the Ripper. And, of course, number one, the Lost Colony of Roanoke.
you are listening to Parareality Radio, your home for all things paranormal, strange, and unexplained. New episodes broadcast the first Friday of every month. Turn on, tune in, and find out. If you wish to change, you must first lift the veil of ignorance that has been cast over your eyes. Only then will you see the true power of the universe. Well, I'm running out of time, and you're probably wondering who in the hell won the end-of-the-year contest with the best paranormal picture. So, since I don't have a lot of time left in this opening show of Season 9, I'm just going to go ahead and dispense with any pleasantries and dragging it out and announce the winner. His name is Peter Wiseman from Boise, Idaho, with his paranormal picture, which I will post up on the Facebook page here as soon as I possibly can. So congratulations to Peter Wiseman from Boise, Idaho. I will be getting in touch with you ASAP, sir, to find out how I can give you your grand prize package. So congratulations to Mr. Peter Wiseman out there in Boise. Man, what a really freaking shipbird place to live man i'm sorry you got to live out there in boise i almost i almost took a job out there one time and then decided against it i don't think i could have stood it (laughs) no sorry peter i'm just i'm just jabbing at you just because i can congratulations and i'll be posting your picture up soon we get in touch with you soon man so congratulations everybody to peter wiseman out there in boise idaho everybody that is winding things down for the show this evening I really hope that you enjoyed tonight's show. Let me know what you thought about it by sending me an email. Sandman at parareality.com Also, just go ahead and visit parareality.com. That's where you can find out all kinds of information about the show. You can listen to current and past episodes of the show there as well. And if you click on the Extras tab at the top of the page, you can be taken to where you can join the official Parareality Radio Forum. It's free to join. Also, you can shop in the Parareality Radio Store and even watch some show videos and a few other things, see some awards that I've won and all that other sorts of stuff. So uh, also don't forget to me look also don't forget to look me up on Facebook. If you're like everybody else in the world and got Facebook, that's Sandman.parareality on Facebook. You can also hear the show there as well, and you can find out more about what's going on in the world of parareality. Well, everybody, my next show is going to be available on Friday, February the 6th, 2015. I'm going to be talking about chemtrails. Yes, you know I'm a big chemtrail person. Haven't done a show on the chemtrails in a while, so make sure you turn on, tune in, and find out on the new day of the show is not Mondays anymore. It is on the first Friday of every month at 8 o'clock p.m. Central Time. So my next show, Friday, February the 6th, 2015 at 8 o'clock Central, going to be talking about chemtrails. Everyone, I hope that this radio program opens your mind up to new ways of thinking, expands your consciousness, and produces a change 
in the way you see the world. If you wish to change, you must lift the veil of ignorance that has been cast over your eyes. Only then will you see the true power of the universe. Hope you have a wonderful evening, and I will see you next month, Friday, February the 6th, 2015, 8 o'clock p.m. I was up in my room, I left the stereo. Play.